Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 125. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I'm so appreciative that you're finding the time to tune into this show. I was going to ask you, have you heard about my other podcast? I got another one out there. It's called Courageous Leadership. It's not an interview podcast like this one. It's just me talking about my leadership philosophy, my leadership beliefs for about 15 minutes. It's a nice way to get caught up. I try to do it two times a week. I was shooting for daily, but just don't have the time. But either way, um, if you find some value in that, take a listen to Courageous Leadership. It helps all of us. It's my thoughts on how we can all become more authentic, more courageous, and bring out that authenticity, that courage that all of us are required to to exhibit to become the leaders that we were meant to be. So again, check it out, Courageous Leadership Podcast. And if you find value in it, just like this show, please leave a rating and review. It means the world to me. It helps so much for my visibility. Again, thanks for tuning in. And here's the interview. All right, Lieutenant Commander Rourke Denver. He's the author of Damn Few, Making the Modern Seal. He's drawing from 14 years of experience as a SEAL commander and director of the SEAL training program. Rourke takes readers behind the scenes of SEAL training and offers a candid, insightful look into how these men are made. Denver earned the Bronze Star with V for Valor, among other top commendations. Denver's an honor graduate of the United States Army Ranger School. Additionally, he holds a BA from Syracuse University and a Master of Global Business Leadership from University of San Diego. And in 2012, you probably saw him where he consulted and starred in the top film, Act of Valor. Rourke, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to the Dose of Leadership. Thanks so much. I love it. Appreciate it. Oh gosh! Like I was just telling you in the pre-interview, I, you know, a year ago I reached out and I couldn't find a gatekeeper, and like you said, you just came off active duty, and now I'm glad that you're here. So tell us a little bit more about why the seals. How did what drove you to go to the seals? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've, I've answered the question a lot, so I I, I don't want to be a broken record, but it's a, it's a real concise story. It wasn't one of those that uh, uh, that happened any other way. I, I was in the spring of my senior year of college at Syracuse, and, and like a, I think a lot of young men and, and young folks that are finishing up their, um, you know, their their kind of university time had no idea what I wanted to do next, and and I knew I liked playing rough and and getting into adventures, and I'd been an athlete and was an athlete there in college, and and um, my dad, brother, and I are always sharing books with one another. We're all voracious readers, and my, my dad sent me a copy of Winston Churchill's My Early Life, and, and that book uh, just served as an absolute call to action. I knew I wanted to serve uh, in the military. I knew I wanted to be an officer, and that that'd be the right place for me to start uh, kind of my adult life, my professional life, and, and cut my teeth, uh, you know, in a real leadership environment or one that had tremendous uh, or very realistic stakes and uh, and was was people centric was was leading people as opposed to just leading a, a task and and that was it that was the that was the spark and then as soon as I knew I wanted to serve I wanted to be an officer then it just became you know drilling down into what uh, what you know discipline or what focus I wanted to have and and, and uh, I heard about this little program they had in Southern California where about eighty percent of the people don't make it through and that <laughs> yeah. sounded like the right odds to me yeah you know it's amazing when you know of course all of us have that been in the military, they always ask, well, why did you join? And I always found, and especially in the Marine Corps side, and I'm sure it's 
def- and I've saw this in the book and I've seen it in interviews too to say the same thing. It's always amazing that the real reason why most people join the military, um, it's the number one reason seems to be they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with it. And I think, <clears throat> I think there's a, a stigma that goes a little bit along with the military. And I talk about this a lot whenever I have an opportunity to um, talk to young folks that they're, and I don't think this was untrue in certain generations that what there was a time where, you know, your only option was basically, you know, either a tough mom or a tough dad. It's like, Hey, you're either going to go join the military. Or I'm going to kick your butt out into the street and you're going to, you know, you know, live under the bridge with the trolls. I mean, I think that, mm-hmm. I think there's a stigma that goes along with, um, or at least, uh, you know, uh, embeds in some way that that's, that's why a lot of people serve. And I, I've found that very, very rarely to be true. Most of the folks that I've, I've seen sign up, both enlisted and officer, really do want to serve and want to be connected to something, um, as you said, much bigger than themselves. And, and I think the lessons and the, 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 the gift of that uh, can be great. So I, I recommend it to anyone. I think uh, a short period of service or a, a lifelong period of service is a, a special way to spend your time. Yeah, and you know the thing that really marinated with me or really came clear to me when I got out of the Marine Corps, and when and I've talked, of course, I talk about it a lot on the show and in my presentations, but when I, when I talk about the experiences and especially the leadership lessons I learned in the Marine Corps, I, when I really strip it all away and it gets down to it and what I miss the most about it, it was actually one of the most, and I'm sure at the SEALs, it, it's exponentially even more so than, than my experience in the Marine Corps, but at the core of it was this uh, essential element of love. And when people hear that from me, they think I'm crazy because when they think of the Marine Corps, when they think of the SEALs, they think of just kind of these you know, type A testosterone driven, you know, maniacs, but it's not the case, is it? It's not. And I mean, you, you couldn't have said it better. And I, I, uh, you know, I know exactly what you mean. And one of my favorite, I love quotes. I love history and literature. And, and uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, you know, about war is, is, you know, that one where it's, you know, the, the, the warrior, the soldier fights, not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Right. And, and that's, I mean that's what it's all about, and I think I think you'd probably say it maybe even a little bit better in those that are that are in the fight um, that you love who's next to you, you know, and so the the, the feeling you have for those people you serve with, and then the the people you serve for uh, drives a tremendous amount of intensity, I think, in, in emotion and belief and passion that uh, that is unique in that in that discipline compared to a lot of other uh, you know certainly uh, jobs people could take. So it, it's special. You know, I had a uh, I became friends with a Iwo Jima Marine of um, that he's still alive, lives down just south of me in Enid, Oklahoma. And he lied wow. he lied uh, to get in the Marine Corps. He was sixteen, and he had he didn't get along with his dad. His mom was dead. His dad was kind of an alcoholic, and uh, his dad uh, was never around. And he says, you know, and Pearl Harbor kicked off, and anyway, he for, he told his dad, you know, if you don't go down there and vouch. for you know, lie about my age. I'm going to go run away and join the Canadian Navy, which they were taking 16 year olds. Anyway, great right. story. Just an amazing story. And you just, you could sit there and listen to this guy for hours. And long story short, three campaigns on his third one was Iwo Jima, 17th day, took a bullet right through the gut, out to the back, missed every major organ. Was a, you know, and he, war was over for him and he re- recovered. And I was in, he was, had, it was in a hospital last year and I was visiting with him and, and I've heard all the stories time and time again for the last 12, 13 years, but I, I always listen to him and hear him again because I love him. And I asked him, I said, what, what was the biggest thing that um, you learned from all of those experiences and all that? And he said, and it caught me off guard, and I don't, he said, he goes, I learned how to love another human being. 
and his wife started tearing up and I was just like and I was like what, they just, what, what an amazing answer you know for all the stuff that he see all the death all the destruction all the camaraderie everything else he learned how to love another human being and I don't know what, yeah what oh you, it's special yeah so uh, anyway I think yeah if you get a chance I mean you know anybody that's listening you get a chance to talk to any of that greatest generation I mean like like you you're, you're wise to take those moments to get that time in because there's there's only so few of them left and, and man is it a gift to spend time with them yeah well, at the heart leaders, at, at what I don't think a lot of people understand, I'm curious to, to hear about, about kind of your journey, especially as you were a young ensign when you came in. How did you, in the 14 years later, how do you think you were as a leader at the beginning, and what was that transformation like at the end? What was kind of the biggest lesson you learned, I guess? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about leadership, and I, I, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, write more about this as I move forward. You know, I'm talking a lot about leadership and performance in elite environments, and I, I intend to um, definitely, uh, you know, work on, on more of a of kind of focused leadership book because I just love the topic, and I think it's so critical to, you know, everything that we do, whether it's leading your family, leading a right. uh, business or, or, or a culture. It's all so, um, so critical to have good leadership. I, I think the thing that I, I draw a little distinction of is, so much of what's written about leadership is about character. Mm-hmm. I, I'm all for character. I, I would much rather be with a man of character and one that has uh, high moral, ethical values and, and so on um, than not. That being said, I, I, I sometimes think it clouds or at least uh, masks some of the you know kind of actions, the the you know what's actually required to lead and lead effectively above and beyond just that that example of character. Again, I'm for it, but sometimes I think you miss because of that. Um, I mean, look, if, if Winston Churchill hadn't been there uh, in World War II, you know, leading that tough little island through that and and and, and pulling us into the war to, to to really put it over the um, over the the top, uh, imagine what the world would be today. And I think uh, I think there'd be a lot of people that would argue about. Um, about the man's character, about his personality, about his sense of humor and the way he carried himself. But he had the judgment, he had the uh, the vision, the ability to lead folks in, in the toughest of all times. So, um, you know, for me, I always thought about my leadership journey as one where I would earn my leadership stripes or, or my rank on the collar um, if, if people thought of me uh, as effective as a leader because not because I was wearing them. You know, not, yeah. I, I didn't want people to say yes, sir, or no, sir, or follow what I was saying because I had uh, ensign bars or up, up through, uh, you know, lieutenant commander uh, rank on my collar. I wanted to do it because they, they believed that I had their best interests at heart, that my focus was to uh, achieve the mission and, and get accomplished what it was we were tasked with, but not um, in, um, you know, not to their... Uh, uh, dismay, not to their, um, you know, fault. So, so I always thought that, that if I, if I could, if I could lead in such a way that it wasn't just because I was wearing rank that I, I would have achieved something. I think right. I always had pretty good judgment when it came to, um, making decisions. And I, you know, I'm not sure if that's something that can be learned or something you kind of just develop over years, but I felt like I was able to make good decisions, um, both in the heat of, of gunfight, but also back home in the rear when we were just preparing and, and, and kind of managing the boys. And then, um, always, always working for a high level of trust. I, n- I never, um, I never, I don't think anybody that, that, that worked for me didn't trust me. And, and if I didn't trust somebody, I'd have to figure out a way to rectify that, or I sure wouldn't want to be in the fight, um, with them. So I, I think the development was just, uh, layers and layers of experience and seeing a lot of different, uh, you know, young men come through that training pipeline, both at the, uh, you know, operational level and then up through the training level, uh, and just recognizing that kind of having that, that good judgment to make good decisions, um, 
that that ability to have that equality, not just because I got rank on my collar, but because you know I'm doing my job, you do your job, we both do it well, we're going to succeed, and then just uh, you know nurturing trust between uh, the the guys you work with, uh, you've got a real good uh, recipe for success. You know, I always like studying um, kind of the extremes of leadership when you see it, obviously in combat, or you look at the great lessons, and I think there's so much in in and the reason why I, I think it's because um, when you look at men in that kind of warrior uh, mindset, the leadership becomes front and center. It becomes raw. There's no, um, how do I say, there's no sugarcoating around it, I guess. I mean, either you got it or you yeah. don't. Either you got it or you don't. And I know Stephen, I, I saw in your book that Stephen uh, Pressfield, you know, had some great things to say about your book. I mean, what a great uh, compliment. Mm-hmm. What a great compliment to have that. I mean, that must have meant a lot to you to get that from him. I mean, I mean, what a great. It uh, did. But you know, I, from Gates of Fire, I noticed. I, I remember um, reading one time when I got out, and to me, it kind of sums up when I think about your experiences. And after I read your book, I finished it last night, and I, and I thought about this. Where Stephen Pressfield says in Gates of Fire that really, you know, the job of you know, I think initially when we think of that kind of larger than life hero, that warrior in our minds, that it's just like I said, this testosterone filled maniac. But really, it's not that. It's about like he says in. in um, in his book that it's performing the, and I'm quoting here, performing the commonplace under uncommonplace conditions. And I just love that. I mean, mm-hmm. um, that's Oh, what, it's one of the great quotes of the book. You pulled one of my favorites and I, I have a lot of them from that book. I mean, definitely one of my, uh, my, my, my real you know, treats in my life was having uh, a guy whose book I read and meant so much to me end up blurbing my book and he's become a friend and a mentor and is just amazing, amazing man. But, uh, yeah, his capture of that culture and that kind of warrior cast, uh, uh, you know, I think in many ways a second to none. And I, and I think you know, the other thing about leadership that I've thought about is, that, you know, I like the Spartans. I, I think the SEALs are, are a unique kind of warrior breed. And, and so um, there are challenges and then and then actually things that are easy within our brotherhood that, that other units don't face as well. I mean, I never one time had to crack the whip on my guys. You know, right. I mean, I never had to say, hey, let's advance, let's push. I mean, it was much more all the time pulling in the reins and actually guiding and directing the guys. I mean, right. you don't need to motivate a SEAL um, to rip around the corner and chase a target or, or, or advance. You need to actually uh, temper that aggression with, with good decision-making. And, and, and the guys do it naturally, but it's a, it's a different problem than, you know, if you had a bunch of, uh, you know, I don't know, reservists or, or, or a unit that just came over there green and maybe right. didn't come from kind of the, uh, the real fighting, you know, fighting core of our, our military history, then you've got a different set of, uh, of issues that you've got to manage as a leader. Um, but, the, but the other thing that uh, I love from the Pressfield book is there's a passage that, that the, the squire that's talking to the Persian emperor talks about, um, you know, let me tell his majesty what a king is. And the entire paragraph is just this unbelievable description of a leader that is willing to pick up you know, pick up the burdens first and put them down last. Doesn't right. stand, you know, sleep while his men stand watch upon the wall. Um, you know, requires, uh, you know, know, gives service to them, not requires it from them. Those are the type of things that became archetypes for me as a young leader that said, look, the higher I go up this flagpole, it means the more people I work for, not the other way around. I think that's one of the the real gifts that that book and that kind of concept gave me as a leader. Yeah, I I, I love that. And I think you're right. I think that, and that's, that's part of the leadership that a lot of people, I think, who aren't involved, or when they think about leadership, they don't think about those things. And and I don't know. I I, I love that that kind of um, 
concept of taking care of, of your own and officers eat last, all those kind of things that seem like common sense. But if you look around, it's not as commonplace as I think it should be, obviously. Yeah, and it's rare. And then and the, the nuance that also is by taking care of them, that doesn't mean you're easy on them. That's it right. Doesn't mean That's you, right. You do what they want. I mean, there's plenty of times my guys wanted to shoot me because I held the line or held a standard that was uh, was absolutely disagreeable. I mean, I remember. Um, I, I don't know if I've, I've ever even shared this story, but I remember before we were going to go to Iraq in 2006, my my team, a lot of SEAL units, and a lot of you know, a lot of military units will have a patch, right? They'll have a, a banner or kind of a flag that they want to fly in the battlefield, and those are those are unique to the individual personality of the of the of the element. My my team kind of built this patch, and we're drawing up patches on a on a chalkboard. And I walked into the room, and I remember looking at the chalkboard, and I said, "What's going on?" And so they were drawing these up, and they could tell that once I came in that there was definitely going to be a discussion about it, but they had basically designed a bunch of patches that looked like uh, crusader coats of arms or, you know, crusade-type right. imagery. And, and and I just said, look, gentlemen, I, I fully appreciate the historical context of us fighting in Iraq in this part of the world and that you could clearly draw connections to the actual crusades and, and what we're doing right now. But, you know, if anyone thinks that this is the right way for us to, you know, join the Iraqi army, folks that we're going to be training and their special operators to get them ready to take this fight for themselves so we can actually leave Iraq at some point. How on earth do you think we're going to be doing right by that in a country whose religion does not share those exact same <laughs> ideals or experience with the Crusades? Will that be a good way for us to introduce ourselves? Right. And I mean, look, the patches look great. They, they made total great sense. They, they make unbelievable posters, and I totally get it. But there was no way my unit was taking that to the battlefield. And so, you know, it was before it even started, it was over, but that was not a popular decision. It was an a unhappy thing, but it was the right thing. And I think the guys that um, know me know that it was the right thing, and, and that's, you know, that's what I got paid for. Yeah, I love that. Well, you're so, it's so true. And yeah, you're right. Taking care of them doesn't mean, I mean, you got to be the, you know, it's the same thing with a parent. You know, you can't be your kid's friend. You got to be a parent. And it's the same thing with, with being a leader. It doesn't mean you make popular decisions all the time. Yeah. That's right. Right. One of the favorite fun part of the books I, I really liked, especially the I, the ins and outs of the training piece. You know that was um, stuff I hadn't seen or read before, and it was really really fun. And, and one thing that resonated was was the different types of seals, how you kind of characterized them there. You know, and it rang true uh-huh. because I remember the first time you know when in the Marine Corps, I worked with you guys a, a handful of times doing the Halo and Hey Ho drops, and I remember sure. we did it in uh, Kuwait, and we, it was this was pre this was in '97. And so this was kind of in between wars, if you will, but it's just training. And, uh, and it was, you guys, they were so much fun. It was so much fun to deal with the seals because they were just so unique. And I remember that first time that I met uh, the group of seals up front working in that environment, I remember thinking, it's like, my God, they don't, this guy didn't even look like a seal. I mean, yeah, I had the Adonis over yeah. here that was, <laughs> you know, and then there's this guy that's shorter than me, skinnier than me. And, uh, yeah. it was just, it's just a cavalcade of characters. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that was one of the fun parts uh, of writing Damn Few was was uh, I came up with this idea of categorizing some of the some of the seal archetypes and the guys that come through. And I think what's funny about it is is we 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 have those those guys, and we have plenty of guys that you think you, that that would make sense. You say, I got it. You know, guy's got muscles. He's built. You know, physically fit. Uh, you know, kind of a, a powerful, uh, dominant looking right. human being. But then we we have guys exactly described that uh, if you saw them at the end of the bar, you want 
you wouldn't think twice about them being, you know, a dangerous man in that location or somebody that could uh, uh, be a member of this uh, this this very very you know elite unit. But uh, what we find through our training is that um, that everybody that shows up at SEAL training is in shape. I mean, you don't even get in the door if you're not in shape. So there's a there's a test that that keeps you from getting there if if, uh, if you can't pass the minimum. So we, when you when you show up there, you, you could make it through. So. Uh, it's clearly not the physical because everyone's passed that minimum standard test to get in there. So something else is happening. And I think we've, we've all agreed somewhere on the percentage of about 90-10, about 90%, you know, mental or spiritual uh, or heart as opposed to the physical. And so if that's true, which we have proven it to be the case, then, then there's no one physical um, prototype that's going to work compared to anything else. I mean, you've got to be fit, you got to be tough, but you got to have a lot more than that to, to join the team. And, and we take creative, um, problem-solving uh, thinkers over just, you know, bar brawl and bruisers right. any day of the week. You know, we want problem solvers and guys that, uh, um, more than anything, just won't quit no matter how bad it gets. If you, you have somebody that's not going to quit no matter what happens, you have a very, very special um, quantity to kind of train. Well, I would imagine that if you took the average IQ of, of a, a SEAL team members, the guys that make it all the way through and are effective, I bet you, I mean, it's, you got to have a pretty high degree, like you said, of creative intelligence, a high degree of emotional intelligence, yeah. a high degree of tenacity and perseverance. I mean, that's a pretty powerful combination. I think uh, people would be surprised at just actually how intelligent that organization is. They would. I, I think if they sat down with a bunch of my buddies, officer and enlisted, they'd be kind of blown. I think they'd be blown away at the conversation points at where um, thoughts and, and, you know, philosophy would go in that room. And, and, and that's, again, one of the real treats of being an officer within that um, within that brotherhood is you have, uh, you know, I, mean, I, had, I had enlisted guys with master's degrees and a bunch of enlisted guys that had college degrees, and that was much more the norm than not. And the ones that weren't were like the type of guys that will end up being Steve Jobs sometimes. You right. know, they're brilliant and creative and devious and, and uh, know how to know how to make things happen. So, yeah, we don't, we, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of dunces in the, in yeah. the teams, for sure. And, and you just don't, you don't find a good home because there, there's too much loaded on each, each man's shoulders and, and too much, um, you know, technology, gear, uh, speed on the battlefield to get things done that, that uh, you got to be bright. You just have to be a bright guy. You know, one thing I was always kind of envious of, and I go back to that first training exercise I did, real world training exercise I did with, with the SEALs. And I remember looking at the, you know, and again, coming from the Marine Corps, and I love the Marine Corps, I love my experience. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't defer back to it. But I remember yep. sitting out there uh, as we were doing our jump brief and just looking at the difference of, of you know, here's a guy wearing a cap. Here, I, a guy had a pierced tongue. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what is yeah. this? You know? and, <laughs> and one guy's got tennis shoes on. One guy's got different boots. And I'm like, this is insane, you know. And, and But it was, was kind of neat. It, there was something about it that I thought was just unique and neat. And it's not, you know – it's not a as some people might people that are kind of wrapped around the axle think oh that's just not discipline this and that there's something unique about that talk to me about that kind of concept that goes on there yeah you know I, I wrote about that in the book as well which I'm sure you picked up on that mm -hmm. that you know it makes a lot of conventional um, military leaders and senior enlisted absolutely insane if they see right. our our guys line up uh, kind of in the battle train next to conventional troops that you know I, I think and you you know exactly what I'm talking about the Marines maybe more than anybody right. will see that and it will make them utterly um, you know, their skin crawl because 
there is doctrine and there is standard and there is, um, you know, sometimes uh, uh, ways to do things by the numbers. And I, I utterly get why you do that in a larger conventional force with mechanized units and, and, and the way to do things. I mean, paint in mind the numbers, there's a reason to do that and I'm for it. Our unit is just more flexible. It, and it, it's one of those things where culturally we have been become comfortable with and are okay with um, that individual choice it makes our 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 brotherhood stronger, and, and it's a very very fragile balance. I think at any given time that th- that whole deck of cards can come crumbling down. But I don't want to argue with one of my guys or have a meeting about what type of footwear he wants to run in because you know I'm look I'm six six one two hundred and forty pounds, so a certain type of boot works for me that doesn't work for right. my hundred and forty two pound wrestling you know shooting buddy who's just built in a different way so we we don't care what you wear we don't care you know what uh type of optic and different thing you can use on 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 your weapon and that's another blessing we have great funding lines that allow us to kind of trick out our gear and do that stuff but it, it, it's much bigger than that it's much bigger than just us trying to come out look looking like a ragtag group of folks and, and you know you've seen it. it it doesn't look out of sorts when we're all together no you uh-uh. just tell guys that have, yep put things together in such a way that works for them and therefore if you make yourself the best performer for for you well then you're going to be the best performer for your shooting buddy for your squad for your platoon and and so it's just something we've grown comfortable with the way the officers enlisted talk to each other i mean it's a lot of nicknames as opposed to sirs and and uh and rank and and that makes other units crazy too it's again it's something that works for us it wouldn't work for everybody no, it was fun. I mean, I I can tell you every time that I worked with with you guys. I mean, it just it was a whole bunch of fun. You guys were so appreciative yeah. that we were taking you there. Um, again, it was just a cavalcade of characters, which was always fun, you know. And it was uh, yeah, it was just it was great. And I working. think what you're describing also becomes a recruiting poster because I remember guys that went through training when I went through, and I remember guys later in my career that said, "Yeah, the reason, you know, particularly guys that came from the Marines from the Army, which we get, we get guys that laterally transfer over to our." our team and, and, and we'll ask them and, and I mean eight times out of ten they'll say, Oh, I was you know, I was in I was in Baghdad, I was in um, you know, Kabul and I saw, you know, twelve of you guys go walking by and I was like, look, I wanna be I want some of what they got going on. I, I don't I don't wanna be you know, rubbing my rubber, mm-hmm. you know, scrubbing my, my barrel down to the bluing and, and, and you know, have simple green as my you know, the rest <laughs> of my life. I wanna right. I wanna I wanna do that. I wanna wear my, you know, high school baseball back cap backwards and, and, and use that on the battlefield so I, it becomes a recruiting poster for, from time to time well i just think it's you know going back to the training piece that you said about how so many different characters are going through and and i remember uh reading i think i saw i guess it was on charlie rose i saw you just the other day and um you don't know who's going to make it through you talk about it in your book too at the beginning you you would have thought well this guy's gonna make it not and they just it you just end up going my god i never would have thought you know and it just yeah. it just shows you the power of like you said it really comes from the heart and the head and uh, that that's what it's all about and you can only find that out through kind of that crucible that you put everybody through. Yeah, that, I mean that's the, the the number one thing that SEAL training offers a young man is the opportunity to quit. It sounds counterintuitive, but what we do is we make it as hard as we possibly can and give as many kind of open opportunities for you to throw in the towel that if you are going to, you will at still train. I mean, if you have that in you, if you have it in you to give up and kind of say, this isn't fair, I don't like this, I, you know, I'm not being treated the way I should, this is too hard, then you're going to quit in SEAL training. And if you're not, 
then we know what we have. We know that at a minimum, uh, the last thing you're going to do is give up. And, and I said earlier, if you, if you have at a minimum a, a piece of play that, that will not give up, then you can mold it into a very, very special type of operator. Yeah, one of my favorite, I was telling a guy I was flying with the other day last week as, as I was early part of the book, and you were talking about Hell Week as you were going through it. And uh, I guess it was a Thursday, I think, if I remember correctly from the book. And uh, your uh, boat mate there just started paddling like there was no tomorrow. And uh, you're like, what's going on? And he's got, did you see the clown on the bike followed us or whatever? And and you all kind of like, well, okay, yeah. If, if, a, if, a, if a guy's hallucinating about a clown chasing us is going to make us win this race, then, uh, then okay, I'll, I'll, well, let's just support that kind of hallucination. I thought that was a great story. No, it's fun. I told I was actually on Conan when the when the book kind of first came out. And we were joking about it. And I remember telling him, I said, you know, I I I didn't see a clown, but I turned around to look. And you would think paddling across the bay, you you I would not need to look behind me to confirm whether or not a clown on a bicycle was was chasing us on top of the water. And that would that would seem absolutely no need to to, to physically uh, get eyes on to make sure. But I was definitely tired enough to say, well, let me make sure there's not a clown. And then I, I talked, uh, I think in the book also about, about, you know, 10, 15 minutes later in that race, those races, races go in stages. And after the next stage, which was close to the last, and you're getting real close to the finish line at that point. It's, it's Thursday morning. You're going to be done somewhere Friday morning to midday. I remember paddling one of the last rounds. And my boat was fast. We had a lot of, lot of, lot of studs and tough guys in my boat were paddling along. And I remember seeing this fence in the middle of the bay and so i'm 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 the boat crew leader so i'm in the back of the boat steering and kind of trying to manage and navigate where we're going and i, I remember seeing this fence and i mean i probably thought about that fence for at least 30 minutes okay so if we get to this fence i've got two guys that are great water pole players so i know they're going to be real powerhouse in the water maybe i can get them to push the boat over the fence or i wonder i wonder if there's a way if we're strong enough to get the boat underwater under the fence i could swim under the fence with the paddles and then we'll get the boat i mean it was just this unbelievable amount of time i spent trying to figure this out of course there's not a fence that runs across san diego bay and i think it was yeah i think it may have been some of the piers down by 32nd street which is the big naval you know naval right. pier system down there and maybe my eyes were just playing tricks on me but yeah it's a, you're you, you've got nothing left in the tanks by the end of that week god i can't imagine that's just it's insane yeah. hey i wanted to talk a couple nuances i took my uh Two older daughters. I got four daughters. I took two, my two oldest ones to um, Lone Survivor when it, uh, on opening night, and uh, there are a couple nuances there that I, I want you to speak to. And I, I and I talked to my daughters about this, and I thought one of the, the great scenes in that movie that I think they probably really nailed it. And just from an officer standpoint, but it was was where they were. You know, the, the scene where uh, the guys are trying to figure out what to do with these goat hooders that have come up on them and what do we do? And, and yep. I, I love the kind of the interaction between the three enlisted guys and they're debating about openly what to do. And uh, I guess it was Lieutenant, uh, uh, uh Mur- Murphy. Murphy. Mur- yeah. Murray or Murphy. Was it Murray or Murphy? Either way. Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. Murphy. Yeah. The Lieutenant standing there, not saying a word during the whole time. And then finally, after this debate that goes on for a few minutes, he finally says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And he lays it out what they're yep. going to do, and then nobody. Everyone's like, "Roger that," and then just go on. I, I think that kind of captured. Uh, that, I captured that. I mean, go, it, ahead. go ahead. I was just saying the thing. It's a small thing that maybe a lot of people might miss, but I just thought that was just perfect. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think you're dead on. I, mean, I think I think I think maybe only somebody in the military would 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 recognize uh, the how big uh, a. Tr- 
transition that is. That, that, and, and that is, I think, the thing I enjoyed the most about being an officer in that unit is, is the best ideas that ever came out of my assault team, they didn't come from me. They came from one of the boys. Right. So the boys say, look, I got an idea how to do this. You know, what do you think? And I'd look at it and I'd kind of, I'd see if it fit into, um, you know, good decision making and, and wouldn't put us in any undue risk. And, and I'd say, yeah, let's do that. And, and, and so that, that kind of creative uh, brainstorming is a big part of the way we solve problems and get out there and do it. But what you picked up on and what I think a lot of uh, folks with military you know, backgrounds will pick up on is that. But then once the leadership and once the decision is made that we're going to go forward, there's no more, there's no more debating. This is what we're going to do. There's a, there's a window of time to discuss and fight and claw and scratch for the idea you want. Once that door is closed, it's closed. It won't be open again. And then it'll only be open again once the fight starts, and then you've got to get creative to move with it. But, uh, no, you picked up on, on probably one of the best parts of uh, certainly the story. Yeah, I think so. And I just can't – because you know, we all try to put ourselves in those, that situation, and I could just see myself, you know, you know, especially when the the gunfight was on, I would be, you know, the weak side of me would be bitching and moaning about that. You know, why didn't we tie him up or why didn't we schwack, you know, and uh, but there was none yep. of that. You know, and I'm sure that the I'm sure in real life that that that's just the way it was. You just didn't look back. In fact, I think I heard Marcus say that in interviews like, yeah, we just didn't second. You know, once it was done, it was done. You know, there's no sense. Yeah, that's that, right. That's right. Yeah. There's just not time for that in that line of work. The uh, the intensity of it, and the, the the speed that it moves doesn't doesn't allow for you know indecision, and so right. you you make the best choice with the information you have at a given time, and then you uh, you press on with that and adjust when you need to. So it's it's very very accurate, and I think the way it happens for real. Yeah, well, and I think that going to decision making, you're absolutely right. I think that was probably the biggest thing, and I've seen in the corporate arena. And um, I don't know how much of it you've experienced it too, but I've seen. But everywhere I've worked in the past 14 years that I've seen, probably the biggest uh, thing that I miss or the thing that I think is missing in most organizations is this ability to make decisions with partial information, kind of this 75% solution that the Marine Corps taught me. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But this idea of just make a decision and go where, as long as you know what the intent is and that decision kind of supports the intent, go with it, you know? That's right. Yeah, for sure. Because the, the thing that's so funny is I think people want perfect plans. Right. What we find is that, that rarely does a perfect plan hold up. So get get to a good plan. Get the one that's based on, on exactly, based on the best information you have at the moment, set to the task, and then get ready to adjust if you need to. But, you know, when you try and make it perfect and then have it dialed, you know, all the way down to the, to the 10 ring and then all of a sudden... You know, something comes out of left field that you didn't expect or that you could have never predicted. Well, now what are you going to do if that right. plan has been compromised? So right. it's, I, I like getting to a good plan and then being creative and moving with it than having a perfect plan that I know is going to fall apart anyway. Yeah, you're never going to have the perfect information ever, ever. Yep. So, yep. yeah. The other little intersecrecy in that movie that I wanted you to get your perspective on, and, and this is less so, but there was a, a scene where um, Lieutenant Commander, uh, I think Kirkston, I think, where he was the, the SEAL team commander. Kirkston. Christensen, yep. yes, and he um, he was asleep, and then uh, the the Latrell's team or Murphy's team was trying to get comms back with, and it was all screwed up, and they finally used the sat phone yep. on an unsecured line, and they called the you know kind of the command post there, and and he woke the lieutenant commander up, and then it was and he was agonizing over the decision: do I call the 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 sort of commander, you know? Um, yep, and so he calls him. And that, I don't know. It's just that the response from the 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 O six there or O five whatever was running the 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 Sadaf uh, commander there, and he says, "Yeah, I've lost comms with." Or Kristen says, "I've lost you know comms with them." And he's like, 
and you know like what else is there yeah and lieutenant commander yep didn't have any other and he's like oh, roger that sir i'll let you know when i got you know and i just thought that kind of that yep. um that candor and that bluntness i missed that because it was like why are you calling me if i can't you know you know call me when you've got a, a plan of action or you're doing something about it you know i don't know is yeah, I think uh, I, I think the thing I like about what you're kind of focusing on is, is is the thing that I tell you know if I'm ever talking at a college or a school and somebody's even you know considering the idea of, of military service and it's probably a little more focused on the officer side. And the only reason I say this is because um, that's the path I went, so I can talk I can talk about that with the most experience and the most uh, uh, you know the most uh, information. But I'll talk to those folks and say you know the thing that's amazing about being in the military is you know let's say somebody's graduating from Harvard right now okay you get a job right out of there at, at the top you get, you get a job at goldman sachs tomorrow but do you think goldman sachs is going to put a brand new harvard grad in charge of anything important anytime soon it's just unlikely i mean you're, you're right. going to be partnered with somebody you learn you know, don't screw anything up and let's see where it goes you graduate day one from officer school and you're in charge of people's lives you're in charge of johnny and billy and and, and bob and you know that's someone's daughter that's someone's husband that's someone's father and, and so the unbelievable amount of responsibility that's put on you young in a, in a, in a military career, uh, particularly as an officer, is very, very special and, and very, very rare. Right. And, and so that's why I then think also you hear that OSEX being like, okay, and I don't hear, I don't hear a big issue right now. I need to have more to go off. You have to have more to tell me or you have to, um, you know, figure out more or win the day on this before I'm going to get involved. And, and, it, and it's, it, it's great. There's times I felt like I was on an island and I kind of said, man, I could use some help. But guess what? I, I mean, now when I'm on an island and I need help, I know I can do it without it, you know, which is right. very, very special. Yeah. Very special. No, I, I love that. So it's great. Well, the book is great, uh, Rourke. And, um, I know before last thing, just kind of a fun question, and you talk a little bit about in your book, but uh, the movie positive negatives on making that. Tell us, tell us a little bit about how the movie came about and uh, the pluses and minuses of making the movie. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was uh, it was a, a completely new thing. The the film company that came in, we were in a little bit of a recruiting depression within the field community, and so we were losing more people getting out than we had coming in, which happens from time to time. And we're such a small force that that can have massive ripples if that goes for an extended period of time. So I think senior leadership was looking for a way to maybe tell our story and, and, and help um, help with recruiting, at least getting the highlight on what our guys do and, and think about and the way we, we kind of, uh, the way our story can be told authentically. And then when the film company kind of came in and got cleared to do it, you know, they asked a bunch of us to participate. And everybody said no to a man. I mean, everyone said no. And uh, just not what we do. We're not going to be involved in that. And as we got to know the film company a little bit more, uh, particularly the two directors, who both come from a Hollywood, you know, stuntman perspective, so they're much more working guys than Hollywood glitzy guys. Uh, we got the sense they really wanted to tell a story about the brotherhood, about how much we care about each other, how much we care about our families, how very much we care about this country and believe in in what this country stands for. And 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 once that became. Um, believable and i think they held that true then it became a little bit more compelling and they also gave us veto power to make sure that you know we told them it's not going to happen on a battlefield it's not going to happen with us you're not going to do a three-story barrel roll into an aston martin with your yeah, you know right. rolex watch and drive away like james bond and in our world you got to medevac somebody when that happens so they they held very true to that and um and so it was fun i mean i think it was a lot of fun to participate in you know the the, the thing that was neat is none of my family my my uh uh, my my parents, my my siblings, my my um, you know my bride, and eventually my kids. They they wouldn't ever know what I did for a living, and that stuff's not 
on camera somewhere. So it's kind of fun to have a, a visual representation of what, you know, what Papa was doing when he was a younger man. Because mm-hmm. you know, obviously my kids won't see it until they're much, much older. Right. But, uh, but it was neat to participate in that and try and get it right. And, uh, and it's opened some interesting doors. So, so, so far, so good. Well, it was great. It was fun to watch, and, and especially after reading the book and watching it and uh, kind of with uh, the Lone Survivor coming out, kind of feeding that kind of seal uh, fervor again. So uh, I don't know. It was fun. So it was, I'm so glad that you came on this show. And uh, how can people get in touch with you, or how can people – obviously the book, I'll have links to the book. They can get it everywhere, I'm sure. But is there any, any – No, way- I appreciate it. Yeah, the book just came out in paperback, so, you know, damn few making the Modern Civil Warriors out there, and then the paperback's got a new cover and a new look, which is kind of fun, so that that's out now. And then uh, definitely look for more books. I, I, I do a lot of speaking, uh, you know, around the country about leadership and training and high performance, and uh, uh, I've got a Facebook page at Rourke Denver, and then, um, uh, you know, I'm up on Twitter and all that stuff, which is completely new social media world for me <laughs> right now. Right. I'm, uh, I'm findable and uh, – and, uh, CAA Creative Artist Agency represents me for some of the speaking stuff. So somebody goes to the Creative Artist uh, Speakers page, they can pull up my my my, uh, my page and, and request me for a speech, which is great. Well, guys, what a thrill and honor to have you on the show. And like I said, it's uh, been so much fun talking to you. I could talk to you for hours about this. And um, But uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for uh, writing the book. And uh, thank you for uh, everything that you're doing uh, for the SEAL community, for the United States, and, um, and for your other brothers out there. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.